0: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
1: It is budget day here in Ontario and the Ford government brought forward their budget today. And it's got, uh, as is usually the case, it has a lot of different things in it. Uh, The big takeaway, I think, from this, and my next guest will tell me if he thinks this is the big takeaway, is... That we are going to be in a deficit position this year, but by next year, we are going to start seeing some surpluses. Meanwhile, despite that, there is increased spending in health care and in other medical issues and things like that. However, however. You, on the one hand, have the Canadian Taxpayers Federation saying this is a spend-crazy budget, a, a spending parade is the way it's described it. The other hand, you've got Merritt Stiles of the NDP saying this doesn't do anything for anybody who's suffering. We need way more spending. Ian Lee is with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. He joins you now. Ian, thank you for doing this today.
0: Uh, my pleasure, Scott.
1: So, uh, who has it more corrected? The government not do enough for people who are hurting, or has it spent way too much again?
0: Well, let's go with the first criticism first. Um, the uh, the leader of the NDP has said we're not doing enough. Um, I- I've actually studied this and done presentations on this, on the amount of uh, support by federal and provincial governments, um, because I was uh, responding in some presentations I made in the last two, three years to this um, a truly nonsensical claim, I heard. The social safety net in Canada has collapsed. We've got to do something. <clears throat> so I went, and, because I'm evidence-based, I went to Stats Canada. And because I knew that wasn't true. I mean, the social safety net includes public health care. Well, we didn't close down public health care. We didn't close down all the hospitals. We didn't lay off all the doctors and send them all. We didn't close down unemployment insurance. We didn't close down old age pensions. We didn't close down Canada Pension Plan. These are all part of the social safety net. So I went and looked at the data. The actual, concrete, empirical, not theory, spending money. And uh, the federal and provincial governments in uh, 2019, as in three months before the pandemic, were spending $500 billion a year. A year! That's 25% of GDP. And, and, there's, and there's politicians that say, governments aren't doing anything or aren't doing enough. We have one of the most generous social welfare safety nets or social safety nets in the world. Our poverty rates have declined to some of the lowest in the wealthiest countries in the world. The OECD we're down to six percent, and so-called deep poverty, according to Stats is down to three percent, which is these are extraordinary low levels. Um, likewise, uh, elder poverty is one of the lowest rates, and the uh, amount, we're lower than countries like Germany. So, now that doesn't mean we can't do more, but let's get rid of that. That it's just false. Of, of politicians to say no, we're no governments aren't doing anything, we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars. Now we can always argue if it's not enough; we should spend more. But we are spending huge amounts. And and to the to the taxpayer um, uh, c- a criticism, I, yes, they're spending more money. I don't. I'm not going to argue that. But you know, the, I think the more important thing is, and I think you you alluded to it, they're not going in, into debt, into uh, running up deficits. And it's not that I'm ideological on deficits. I'm not. You know, if there's, if there's a valid, legitimate reason for spending going to deficit financing, okay. But right now we're trying to cool the economy, not, uh, uh not incentivize or, or put stimulus into the economy. And that's what deficits are. So where am I going with this? I think that the Ford government struck the right balance between too little and too much. And they did, and they, you know, they did announce new spending initiatives. No question about it. More in healthcare, which is needed. More in manufacturing to create a um, an environment that is conducive to businesses investing here. That's a good thing. But what they did do is because they didn't run a deficit, or at least they ran a very, very tiny deficit. Next year they're going to break even. Is I think what they were doing was what I've advocated for years and years. There's nothing wrong with announcing new spending in some new area, whether you're federal or provincial. But then you should be matching the new spending with offsetting reductions in other areas of the budgetary expenditures. The government of Canada spends $400 billion a year. The government of Ontario just announced today they're spending now $200 billion a year. So if you're going to announce new spending in health care or, or infrastructure, that's good. But just make sure it's offset with corresponding reductions somewhere else in the gargantuan spending that governments are undertaking. And I think that's what the Ford government did today.
1: It is. I think it's clear, uh, again, someone might take issue with it, but I think it's clear that many Canadians, many Ontarians, don't have a problem with deficit spending. We've seen this, that people have been very supportive of the federal government with its spending. It seems very unpopular or not very contemporary to say we want to be having a surplus. Should then, if that is the feeling and the sentiment of the public... Should this government have said, rather than then trying to run a surplus, and we have people who are hurting because of inflation and other things, that we will find other ways, we'll not run the surplus, we'll pour that money back into programs?
0: Um, yeah, I, I, yes, we're in a democracy. Of course, we are. Every every democratic country has uh, you know provincial governments, state governments, and national governments, uh, and and it's again, it's a, I think it's a balance. It's a delicate balance between, on the one hand, um, uh, providing the Um, what voters want, what taxpayers want, expressed through their voting preferences. I agree. At the same time, uh, I think the role of government leaders, premiers and prime ministers and presidents, is to show leadership. And when they... Have a, a policy demand imposed on them that they know is going to hurt the economy or hurt the country they have a a duty i believe uh, to stand up and say no people i 'm sorry i 'm not going to go down that road because it 's not good for us in the medium longer term it 's going to hurt us and so i I think that uh, yeah, and and to your point uh, exactly about people suffering i don 't dispute that i 'm not trying to be callous i 'm saying that there are different i am arguing that there are different ways to slice and dice and address problems. Today they did something that I thought was extremely innovative and they should get more credit. They announced an expansion of the authority to pharmacies to prescribe all kinds of routine drugs. People say, what in there's that got to do with it? Well, there's millions of Canadians who don't have a general a GP and they can't go to their doctor to get prescription drugs when their kid is sick. And now what they've done is they've granted them access. Well, I think that's as important as increasing um, uh, uh, income support checks by a few dollars more a month. If you can access and give, uh, I mean, there's a, a drugstore on just about every corner of every street in every city in this country, as far as I can see. And so what they've done is they've radically increased by that executive decision or governmental decision, they've radically increased access to to people, often who are low income or modest income, who don't have a doctor, or they can't get in because there's a queue that takes a long time. That's the kind of strategic thinking, of clever thinking. We need more of that. Sometimes just throwing money at a problem saying, I'm going to give you another $10 a month on your old age pension check, doesn't address what the problems are that that person is facing. Sometimes they're facing problems that aren't a, quote, money problem per se. They just can't get to a doctor. So I thought that today that's the kind of more creative, strategic policymaking that is needed, as I strongly support the idea of clinics for routine medicine outside of the hospitals. I don't mean major stuff, I'm not talking heart attack, oncology, trauma, um, mental health that's going that must be continued to be delivered in in traditional very high-tech and expensive hospitals but there's lots of stuff like my my knee replacement that didn't have to be delivered in a very expensive hospital in Ottawa you know there's a lot of stuff delivered routine medicine that we deliver in the hospitals which are very expensive which could be delivered much more effectively and efficiently and 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 quickly to people that are suffering by putting them into clinics in shopping centers for example that again is the kind of clever thinking. It's not just only stand up and promise to throw more money at somebody and give them another 10 or 20 or 30 dollars a month on their UI or uh, social assistance check or whatever. It's often access to things. And so I thought that they went down that road today. I wish they'd gone further. I wish they'd gone further but they're going down the right road.
1: Very quickly, because we are short on time, one of the really interesting things is they've announced that they've got a contingency fund of $4 billion. And I'm thinking, why have a contingency fund? Either put the money against the debt, or if you run short governments are allowed to borrow, and we don't necessarily, we can always do that. Why Why set aside this money, or or even give people a break on their taxes? Why have a contingency fund sitting on hand?
0: Uh, Scott, I'm not just saying this to go, go, to go along with you, because I'm not afraid to disagree with any journalist, I promise you, I assure you. That was exactly my reaction. I mean, I think that contingency funds are, I mean, it's not that they're illegal, let's be clear. I understand very clearly what a contingency fund is, okay? But, and, and I understand in a condominium, once upon a time, many years ago, and my very first home, I was the president of my condominium corp. And it was a very small condominium corp. There was only 80 owners in the place. I understand putting away a contingency fund in a very small economic entity, in a small business, in a small condo corp. But the government of Canada, the government of Ontario, is backed up by the taxpayers right, of the totality right. of the economy. It's unnecessary. It would be better to either, as you said, pay down the debt or tax reductions or in, uh, new program spending. I, I don't think, not only is it not necessary, I think it's, it's, you're wasting opportunities. If you've got that money to put away, then either, like you said, reduce taxes for whoever you think is, is paying too much, or put it in more into healthcare or into creating more clinics or into, uh, incentives to create the Ring of Fire and get the Ring of Fire going. Something like that that's more infrastructure that has a strong economic payback for the economy. But uh, I, that's Almost. The idea of a contingency fund is almost like that biblical story, I'm not religious, but that biblical story of the guy who buried the money in the sack in the backyard. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it, you're, you're wasting it. It's not—putting it into a contingency fund is not productive. It's not useful. It's not—you could get a much bigger bang for buck for society—
1: yeah, if you yeah, did something yeah, else. It's it. interesting. And you know what? There's, I mean, there's another story in the Bible about the contingency fund where David says to store up for seven years because there's going to be a drought. I mean, <laughs> there's a point when it makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure it did here. I wish we could talk about it more. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business. Thank you for this.
0: Thanks very much. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: Day two. Well, not day two of the China situation as far as involvement with our elections and stuff. But day two with the huge crisis with uh, the story about Handong, the liberal MP uh, from Global Sam Cooper. I want to bring in Tim Powers. He is the chair of Summer Strategies. uh, Joins us right now. Sam, or uh, not Sam, Tim, thanks for doing this.
2: Yeah, and uh, sorry, Scott, for all the noise. As I told you, I'm at the Senators versus Tampa game trying to keep an eye on my son who's trying to get pucks at the warm-up. That so.
1: is that. Is, yeah, you're a good dad for doing that and uh, for getting him there. Um, one of the things, so your company, Summa Strategies, one of the things that you guys do that's on your website, people can read about it, crisis communications and management. <laughs> In the last 24 hours, has the government done a good job at that?
2: They haven't done a good job at it for weeks, Scott, uh, Scott. That's why they're, you know, constantly falling behind on this story or blowing up on this story. The Hong Kong story of yesterday now is another pile on. You saw that question period today when Pierre Polyev, but after the, the liberals trying to get some clarity on what they knew or didn't know about Hong Kong. I mean, some of this may culminate tomorrow or take a new twist tomorrow when there's a joint press conference with uh President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau, but so far, Scott, everything they have done to try and make this story go away has not happened. The last thing I'd say in the long answer I'm giving you, they've got a pretty fearsome opponent, and it isn't the political opposition, it it is the uh, people in the security establishment who are giving journalists like yourself information to write these damning stories.
1: Well, one, one of the things, and, and like I don't want to uh, read too much or interpret too, too much, but you're hearing on social media, in people's conversations, one of the things over and over is every time there is a direct question being asked, it seems, of someone in the government, what you're getting back is a word salad of yeah. nothing – I that seems to me and this seems to be the perception that every time that happens it says oh yeah there is something to this because if i just said the clear answer we might understand but it, it seems this is not working that people are interpreting this as a sign of guilt is that a is that a, a uh, fair yeah, description
2: a- absolutely fair analysis and look there may be some legitimacy to the government saying i can't answer this question or i can't answer that question on legitimate national security grounds but when that approach is taken to every question, uh, I think people begin to doubt every answer. So, as I say, the, the liberals continue to uh, muddle and make a greater mess of of all of this uh, than they perhaps needed to. And, uh, you know, our our company owns Abacus Data, as you know. Well, we're going to have a poll coming out the next day or so on where Canadians are with this particular story of alleged Chinese electoral interference. The last time we looked at it, a week and a half ago, you know, 8 in 10 Canadians knew about it, which is not surprising. Only really 25% of Canadians were paying attention to it. I wonder if those numbers have changed because of, what has transpired the last few weeks
1: I uh, yeah I wonder too at the same time though and Tim I you know I almost wonder again uh, social media is a terrible place to try and <laughs> get any kind of accurate read on what the public is is saying because the loudest voices are the ones using that nonetheless it does seem like you have divided the country into two well-dug-in camps, one that says that the Liberals are corrupt and that China has infiltrated them and all the rest, and the other that seems to say, it doesn't matter what you find, I don't believe any of it anyway, yeah. and the alternative is worse. It seems we've hit almost the stasis here of, we're not moving.
2: Yeah, there's not a lot. I think you've, you've picked that apart well. I, I think whether... Whether the country's divided in two, three, or four, I think the overwhelming thing is their distrust is rising. And we saw what in mean, institutions and politicians, not just liberal politicians, but mostly liberals are the focus right now. And that's not good for the whole of this. So that drives us back to whether there should be a public inquiry or not. And I think the more, you know, if you take the the opposition arguments out and the politicization out of, of it, out if you could, maybe... The value of a public inquiry is to try and have a healthier dialogue about what is actually happening in our democracy and how it is corroding and if there was specific corrosion around what China did and the like. But each day it seems it's getting worse and more difficult to have a reasonable conversation about this and other stories.
1: It does seem going back, and it may go before Bill Clinton, but Bill Clinton seems to me to be the guy who sort of started the, hey, when you're in a crisis, just try and run out the clock, and eventually people become fatigued. It almost seems like the idea of an inquiry and everything else, it's like, let's just drag this out as long as we can, and eventually people are going to lose interest.
2: Except, even in the case of Mr. Clinton, he didn't have a very determined, it seems, Padre, or maybe it's one person, two people, who knows how many it is, within the Canadian security establishment who basically put their hands up, uh, some of them, and said, this is enough. I heard an interview with uh, Michelle uh, Juno Katsui. Name will be familiar to you. He's a former CSIS agent. Um, He uh, does a lot of media now. He was making the point today with a colleague of yours elsewhere that, look, um, uh, Canadian security agents have been telling different prime ministers and different governments for years, that this issue with China and trying to subvert democracy is real, and you need to pay attention. His thesis was, you know, they've crossed the Rubicon now, many in the security establishment, they finally believed if no one is going to listen, listen to us within government, we are going to go to the public. And that seems to be where we are.
1: All right, let me throw one other thing at you here before I let you get back to the hockey game, and that is this. I am totally baffled on one thing that was happening in the House of Commons today. For a week or there, or even more, it seems we have had Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives screaming for a public inquiry. And today, Jugmeet Singh tweets out, despite attempts by conservatives to block it, we have managed to get an independent public inquiry vote to happen. Uh, what am I missing here? I thought, how can you say, how can anyone say that who's on well, what I side? I think Mr. I d- Singh
2: is explaining is, um, the influence that he's had. The only, like you, um, I, I think Mr. Singh is pointing, like you, I haven't heard that that has been committed to. But I think Mr. Singh is pointing to what, um, was said by the government yesterday in giving us in the special rapporteur's mandate that he has to tell um, the government and the public by May 23rd if there's going to be a public inquiry. So maybe he's pointing to that, but as I stand here watching this hockey game or about to watch this hockey game, I'm not aware that an official public no. inquiry has been called.
1: No, they, they, they had a motion urging the government to launch it, which passed, but that doesn't mean there's necessarily going that to be one. doesn't mean
2: shag all unless it was a confidence motion, doesn't mean
1: anything. Yeah, okay, last thing before I let you go. At this point, with everything that's gone on, especially this story from yesterday, can David Johnson, can he possibly come back and say we don't need a public inquiry? <laughs> uh, it
2: would be very difficult for a former Governor-General to do that. Um, yeah, he's a very able to speak person, as I think many have argued. Uh, I, I, yeah, I... I I don't know. Unless he comes back and cre- and says they create something like was done in Af- around the Afghanistan uh, reporting, you'll remember that Harper created a task force led by John Manley that did, did public reporting, did investigation, and reported on a quarterly basis. Maybe that's enough. I don't know. But David Johnson has few options when it comes to what the public storytelling of this will be.
1: Tim Powers, the chair of Summer Strategies. Enjoy the hockey game tonight. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, buddy. Bye.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: Let me get on to this next thing that I, I, I came across something today. I don't even know where I saw this and I was stunned by this because if you look down the list of people, of artists, groups, and individuals who have had number one songs on the Billboard Hot 100 list over the years, that is the... You know, that's kind of seen as the official number one ranking. If you've had a Billboard Hot 100, that's that's considered a number one song. That you can say for sure I've had a number one song. And if you look down the list of the people who have had Billboard number one songs, there are tons of them. Famous people, famous well-known artists. I mean, I'm just looking at the list alphabetically, so it's going to come up like ABBA. Okay, obviously. Brian Adams. Sure. Christina Aguilera. Yeah, the animals, Paul Anka. Yeah, Louis Armstrong, okay? But you've also got Ace of Base and Ashanti and Iggy Azalea and um, I don't know, who else? Mr. Acker Bilk. I never even heard of that person. Um, on and on and on. Anyway, let me bring in Eric Alper. He is a music publicist. He's a music writer. He's a guy who's involved in the industry. Sir, how are you today?
3: I'm good. I can name all of the group of seven. You ready? <laughs> I, Iron Man. Just <laughs> America. Oh, yeah, there you oh. go. Thor. <laughs> no. You know, I, I, remember, I remember being in, in junior high school, and the, the group of seven was our version of Menudo, because once you got too old or you died, they just brought in another member.
1: That's right. Yeah, they they once they passed away, they uh, yeah, it's true, it's true. But uh, and did you ever have field trips to the McMichael Gallery?
3: Every single year. Yeah. Along with going to the Black Creek Pioneer Village, where we had to churn our own butter and dress like we did back in 1910.
1: Yeah, and 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 for some reason, and I may not even be remembering this right, but the one thing about the McMichael Gallery that I always seem to remember was the totem pole, and I don't know if that oh, was accurate.
3: Oh, right. Look at you. You got a better memory than I do. Well, the, I just
1: know dumb things like.
3: That there's eleven hundred and forty-seven different number one songs that hit number well, one on the Billboard All One
1: Hundred. Eleven hundred and forty-seven. Okay, so that yeah. I mean, that's a huge number, and and you can have one-hit wonders. You can have people who have had enormous careers. I think the Beatles still hold the the uh, the 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 record for the most number one hits. But I mean, Michael Jackson had thirteen, for example. Um, yeah,
3: Mariah Carey leads with nineteen. Is
1: it Mariah Carey? Okay, Elvis yep, has eighteen. They've got the Beatles here on this list with 20 with Mariah at 19, but regardless, the the Beatles are up there anyway. So I started going through this because what I saw today was who never has had a number one song. And I almost, almost, Eric, fell off my chair. Let me go through (laughs) some of these names because there is no possible way this is true, except it's true. How in all that is good and pure in the world... Has Bruce Springsteen never had a number one song?
3: Yeah. You know, when, when you think about how many songs there are, so there's a hundred songs in the hot one hundred, all of them have fabulous people working them at radio. All of them have strong radio potential. Um, all of them have tour dates for the most part, um, Bruce Springsteen he got his close as number two for Dancing in the Dark yep. from the Born in the USA album. But it just happened to be in the same year, in the same summer, that some guy named Prince released Purple Rain and When Doves Cry was the number one song throughout all of it. Springsteen has written a number one song. He actually wrote Blinded by the Light for right. Man for Man's Earth Band, um, that hit the number one in uh, nineteen seventy seven. But Sometimes it's just right song, wrong moment. Because if you get stuck when, oh, I don't know, Harry Styles or The Weeknd released their album, well, you just might have to wait your turn.
1: I, I mean, look, the fact that number, the fact that Springsteen's highest song was Dancing in the Dark, as opposed to, because I thought for sure Born in the U.S.A. would have been a number one song, but it's not even, right. not even close. And by the way, yes, Man for Man, did he write the lyrics to Man for Man and the most misunderstood lyric in rock and roll history? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, um, okay. So other people who um, I, the, again shocked me—not not as much, but Backstreet Boys. I thought, how in the world did Backstreet Boys never have? Because even if Springsteen, you go, okay, well, he's maybe a more um, credible artist. I don't know if people would say that, but Backstreet Boys yeah. seem to be exactly chart material. That's what they're designed for.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when um, let's say let's say that there's two there's two eras in music recently. There's the pre-Spotify YouTube one, and then there's the after all of this music streaming services came along. So in the late 1990s, and when there was Britney Spears and Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, um, the, the Billboard Hot 100 rules were that it kind of combined the radio play. So, you know, if you got more radio spins in the U.S., and it was worth more in terms of the chart number than somebody who didn't have a lot of radio play. But the song had to be commercially available during the time that you're on the chart, or at least when you release it, meaning that you could have a number one song on TRL, on MTV, or much music. You could be all over the radio. But if the song wasn't available to buy, you didn't qualify mm. for the Hot 100. And it was only until around Spotify and YouTube came along that they said, okay, now we're going to add streams, and now you don't have to make it commercially available because there was only one real website that allowed you to buy downloads, and that was iTunes. So they didn't want to make Apple being the only place. So depending on the era, certain ways of popularity of a song weighted more than some other ones. So with the Backstreet Boys, they hit number two with Quit Playing Games With My Heart. But I Want It That Way was number one on the radio for a couple of weeks. But it wasn't a commercially available single. They didn't make it available on CD to buy only that song or cassette single. Therefore, it didn't even make the chart. It wasn't qualified. So it only hit number six. If it would have been for sale at record stores, it would have easily hit number
1: one. Okay, so someone, though, who would have had their stuff available for sale at a time when they were pumping out hits... Another person never had a number one hit. James Brown, the Godfather of Soul, never. Uh, number two, sorry, number three, uh, I Got You, I Feel Good was number three. Living in America, number four. That's the highest he ever got. I, again, how is I Feel Good not a number one song somewhere along the way?
3: Yeah, so let's go back into this whole different era, different, um, different ways of hearing music and seeing music and buying music was different. In the time that James Brown in the 60s, you didn't have MTV or much music. So video play was out. Obviously, you didn't have music streams, so that was out. The big difference was that that Billboard had a R&B chart. They had a black music chart, which is just their way of saying, if you're black, you were segregated too, you're on this chart. does not matter what kind of music you played. Um, they had a pop music chart. And radio in the U.S., if you were pop, you didn't necessarily have your songs on R&B. If you were R&B, well, you weren't really getting played so much on pop radio, you know, without going too deep into it. Stations in Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, they didn't necessarily play a whole lot of black artists. Um, In fact, they probably still don't. Um, So James Brown might have been number one on the R&B chart with the black music station, but because those white stations didn't play him he missed out on okay, so, all of those chart numbers so
1: when did that go until
3: i'm going to say probably 1979 or so okay cuz i would have thought then they had a black music and <clears> it, like they, they had a disco chart up until
1: 1991 okay, but i, w- I still would have thought then that from uh rocky mm. 4 James Brown living in America. I believe that I like if, if that's why I was asking, I would have thought, okay, that song with the exposure of a Rocky movie and a great song that that would have broken through. I I'm amazed that, that he never did. Uh, Here's a funny one. Uh, Martha and the Vandellas never had one. Dancing in the street got to number two. I think, and I would have to double check this. I think dancing in the street went to number one with Mick Jagger and David Bowie, but never with the original with Martha and the Vandellas.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah. It, and, and, you know, let's bring up Manford Mann and all of this all over again, because, um, you know, they have something to do with it. They they never had a number one song with, with Dancing in the Street. It was number two behind Do I Diddy Diddy, behind <laughs> Manford Mann. Somebody needs to, like, stop Manford Mann. Um, he should have been kidnapped by some of the other records. Yeah, before. exactly. He just seemed to, like, start it. Um, but this is where it gets really interesting, because... You know, you could be number three on, like right now, you can be number three on Spotify's chart. You can be number four on YouTube's chart. You can be number eight on the radio chart in America. Um, You may actually have a number one song because you might be just sneaking up everybody else that has a number one radio, but zero streams, or I'm blowing up on TikTok, but nobody knows who I am on YouTube. If you can stay in the top 10, there's a really good chance that you can actually be number one this
1: week. Bob Dylan never had a number one song, which, uh, I, see, this is one that I don't know whether I expected that he would have or not. I mean, Bob Dylan is legendary. He's known as the poet. He's he's His songs are known. I don't know if, I mean, I, on the one hand, I kind of just assumed he would have. On the other hand, maybe I didn't think that he would. I don't know, but he never had a number one song. Yeah, you know,
3: I, and I think part of it is because we all know Bob Dylan is as an album guy. You know, he's got almost 40 albums, um, not a lot of singles. He's done 95 singles in his career, but none of them are really kind of radio-ish singles except for, you know, the the one that we all know, like, you know, Tight Connection to My Heart and Rainy Day Women and... and Rolling um, Stone, uh, like yeah, a Rolling Stone. Yeah, um, But again, like, you know, maybe it ends up to be where... He's getting some radio play, but nothing in middle of America where they just think of him as just a dirty old hippie that just needs to go away.
1: Yeah, okay, so a few more here that I was just that absolutely shocked me that they never had a number one song. Uh, so I, I wouldn't necessarily have said that this artist would have had a number one song just because of who she was, Cheryl Crow, I'm talking about. but I yeah. thought for sure that all I want to do, once upon a time had to have been a number one song because there was a time during that time when it was out uh, that you heard nothing but that song. It was it was like yeah. the uptown funk of its day. You could not not hear that song no matter where you went.
3: Yeah, and again though, you know, blocked by a song that was even bigger with Boys to Men, I'll make love to you which hit number one for 14 weeks. So there was probably three or four songs during the Boys to Men run that summer um, where they were just stopping everybody. Um, Cheryl Crow, going back to the whole radio thing, again, probably number one on Rock Station, probably number one on adult Contemporary, Middle of the Road Station, but Boys to Men was on black music stations, R&B stations, pop music stations, Easy rock stations. So you had a real good mix of a, of a great song um, and a, an amazing video and a romantic song, right smack dab in the middle of summertime. Uh,
1: okay, two more. Um, this one again, I, I I would have just assumed because of the what's the word I'm looking for? It was everywhere. The just <laughs> omnipotent. Yeah, the the well, that's not it. But the omnipresence of it, uh, not omnipotence, although maybe that too, um, M- <laughs> MC Hammer. So yeah. again, not a guy with the, like the longest career in the world, but again, for a time there, everybody was doing the MC Hammer dance, wearing the MC Hammer pants, uh, and you know, he's got at least two songs that you look at when, how would they, uh, you know, uh, you can't touch this and, um, uh, what's the other one he had that,
3: uh. Uh, uh, Pray. Yeah, Pray it was, uh was number two. Yeah. Pray, you just, uh, yeah.
1: Just can't, can't believe that he was never at number one. Anyway, that's uh, that's another one. And then... Yeah,
3: pray, pray hit number two, you can't touch this, hit only number eight. I so know. pray was actually the bigger song according to the Hot 100, which is so bizarre to me because you, you never hear pray anymore. You only hear You Can't Touch This everywhere.
1: Right, and Too Legit to Quit. I also forgot that's about that. That's right. That's the other one. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, but the other one, okay, last one on this group because again, if people can go and look it up, it's amazing how many like huge stars somehow never managed to break through. There is a song that every single person knows, every single person can sing along to and probably does when it comes on.
3: And it's happy birthday.
1: Well, that too, which probably, did it ever go number one? (laughs) Uh, Pat Benatar, Hit Me With Your Best Shot. It was the first song on Guitar Hero. Everybody knows Hit (laughs) Me With Your Best Shot. Never went number one. None of Pat Benatar's songs ever went number one.
3: No, but the person who wrote it, Eddie Schwartz, who is from Toronto, he would never complain. <laughs> he did all right. You have a song like that, all you you don't even need a number one song. You just you have a song that everybody knows because it's been played for 50 years. I don't think he suffers anything.
1: <laughs> uh just before we go, uh this story, I'm reading this from the BBC that uh, it was a story from uh 2 days ago. Uh, the global music revenues, so all the streaming services and everything, yeah. streaming uh, sales of albums, although, I mean, do, do people still buy CDs? Anyway, that's not a discussion for another day. The total music revenues last year rose to $26.6 billion, which is the highest since the nineties and that's, you know, adjusted for inflation, and everything else. And yet the industry says, Oh, you know what we got? We've got to raise streaming service subscription prices. We're way too low. Really? I think
3: they are. Yeah. For the, for the a la carte ness of having 75 million songs at your disposal for nine 99, what it really just always comes down to in the past and forevermore is that the 1% are really going to make about 85% of the income. So don't cry any tears for the Ed Sheeran's or the Weekends of the world, um, or Drake. Um, the middle part of it is, is getting completely separated where you're either making a lot of money or you're barely making more than $10,000 from your music on a consistent basis. So yeah, I think that there is room to grow. Um, uh, that number is definitely helped by the rise of vinyl too, because vinyl just exploded again last year. Um, you know, it, it's about a million and a half, a, a, a billion and a half dollars vinyl records made this last year. So it's not like, you know, more than 10, 15% of it, but certainly that that's helping keep music cool though. $26.6 Oh,
1: you know, for anyone who says that the music industry is dead because nobody buys albums anymore, <laughs> $26.6 billion.
3: Because Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan never had a number one. That's
1: right. Yeah, it died a long time ago. Uh, Eric Alper, always appreciate your time doing this. Thanks for for taking oh, a few minutes. to do it. We'll talk soon.
0: The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on
1: 900 CHML.